Well, good evening again, if you're just joining us. Um, we have begun a sermon series here in the book of Acts uh, for, the, for the evening service. And so tonight we find ourselves uh, wrapping up the end of chapter 4, Acts 4, 23-37. And, and where we've been up till now is that Pentecost happened, right? The Holy Spirit, as promised by Jesus, came. <clears throat> it began filling the people of God with, uh, with its power, and uh, we begin to see uh, the ministry of the apostles taking place. Uh, so Pastor Joseph kicked us off a couple weeks ago on the healing of the lame beggar, which was uh, a miracle that was done uh, for a lame man who, was, who sat in front of the temple for years and years, and people knew him, recognized him, and one day he was healed by the power of the apostles. So then this beggar goes and, and shares this good news, share this miracle that has happened. So people are coming, they're interested, they're piqued. Some people are, are believing in what is, the apostles are doing and others are not. And particularly so, Peter and John are then brought before the Jewish council and, and warned and threatened uh, to say, stop doing what you're doing uh, or, or we will um, enact violence upon what you're doing there. And so this is where we find ourselves in, in this part of the narrative is immediately after how did the apostles respond. So if you will let me, I'll read us uh, the passage for tonight. I'll read God's word. And as is custom here, if you would respond with thanks from Acts chapter 4. <clears throat> when they were released, that is Peter and John, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord. Who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit. Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus. Whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they heard, <clears throat> and when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as they had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. This is the word of the Lord. So we're beginning to see the early stages of the ministry of the early church, and they're doing it with remarkable unity, 
remarkable uh, togetherness. And if, if any of you in here are, are musicians, and you think about how you tune your instrument, right? Uh, I used to play cello, and I think about turning the, the prongs um, on the top of my instrument. And you, you think about how you tune your instrument, you can run into a problem if you say, well, I'll tune my instrument relative to what this person next to me is doing. So you two may be in tune with each other, but then when you come together with a whole orchestra, it's not necessarily guaranteed that you'll be in tune with everybody else. There will be disharmony in what you're doing. And the proper way to tune is to have a, a common letter or a common note uh, that everybody is tuning themselves to. And this is a picture of what we're seeing here. It's not as though small factions of people are coming together to, to kind of assemble and, and enact their own agenda, but they're all in tune, in unity, with, the, with what the Holy Spirit is having them do. The Holy Spirit is their true E or C, if you will. <clears throat> and so they're doing so both in their word and their deed. And so that's what we're going to investigate tonight. How did the early church demonstrate this unity of the word in their theology, in their belief? How do they demonstrate unity in their deeds, in their practice? And lastly, how does that apply for us as the modern church? What does that mean for us? So firstly, the unity that the apostles displayed in word, in their theology and belief. Uh, the first half of the passage that I just read from verses 24 to 28, <clears throat> the apostles in response to these threats of violence that they had occurred from the Sanhedrin and then the Jewish chief priests and their council, they come together and they decide to pray. And what they're praying here, what's quoted there, the intended passage there, is actually from Psalm 2. And Psalm 2, if you flip back to it, is, is what's called a messianic psalm. It's a psalm that tells all about Jesus and prophesies of what he will do, what the Messiah will do when he comes. The kings and princes of men are going to gather together, as Peter quotes here, <clears throat> gather together in rage to plot in vain. And what Peter is saying, and what David writes as the author of this psalm, is that kings and princes and men, what we're prone to do is to overthrow God from his throne and his authority. That's, that's our MO. That's what we default to, is try to overthrow God in our lives as we were thinking about earlier in the, in the confession. And the epitome of that tendency is what Peter lists here and what actually happened in the, on the cross, in the crucifixion of Jesus. So David, way back when, centuries before, prophesying that men and kings and princes would gather together to plot against God and his anointed one. That the responsibility of the crucifixion of the death of Jesus didn't fall across cultural or ethnic lines, but as Peter lists here, it was both Herod and Pontius Pilate, both the Jewish and the Roman government, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. Everybody, mankind, was responsible for the death of the Lord Jesus, his anointed one. And so throughout the, the rest of that section, you can hear Peter wrestling with this idea of the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of human beings. First, he says that this psalm that he quotes, that he cites here in Psalm 2, was through the mouth our father David, your servant, affirming that 
that David was the one that wrote this psalm, but it was also the Lord, the Holy Spirit, inspiring David to write the psalm. So who wrote the psalm? Did God write the psalm, or did David write the psalm? The answer is, is yes. Right? This idea of God's sovereignty and human responsibility in it. And God would use a flawed man like David to speak his very words. There are parts of David that we know that he fought Goliath, he demonstrated a ton of faith and repentance, but also he was marked as an adulterer, a murderer, somebody who abused his power. That God can use men, flawed men like David, like you, like me, to speak his message, to speak his words. But what's key, that what Peter is trying to bring out in his sermon here, is that Jesus' death, his crucifixion, as responsible as the Jews were, and as the Romans were, and as the Gentiles were, in the death of the Lord's anointed, was still a part of God's sovereignty. That Jesus' death, the death of his one and only son, was still a part of God's plan. How does that make sense? Did Jesus die in the hands of men, or did God plan for this? And the answer is yes. We can't minimize the human responsibility of sin. We're not saying that the people who actually nailed Jesus to the cross and Pontius Pilate and Herod didn't have a part of it because it was a part of God's plan, but we were, they were responsible for it. But it was all a part of God's sovereignty. It was all a part of God's plan. And this was the understanding that the early apostles are trying to make, that they just witnessed their teacher, their good friend, their Lord, their Savior being crucified on the cross according to God's plan, but they also saw him rise from the dead and defeat death itself and now are given this power to enact his mission, his ministry. So they have this hope and assurance. This was at the core identity of the early church. They lived this reality. But what does it mean for us as modern 20th century, 21st century Christians? And oftentimes, sadly, uh, this idea, this battle happens on the ground of one word called predestination. This idea where some people have had hurts and maybe even some trauma in the church around this idea of how could God be that sovereign? How could God have planned all of that and yet my lived experience is brokenness, is war, is pain, is relational strife, is sickness, is death? How do you reconcile those two things? They can't believe that God that would be that sovereign. So one thing that I want to do point out here is that there is a difference between reflecting on the sovereignty of God and fatalism. The sovereignty of God and fatalism. The, the common thing between those two things is that all things are predetermined, pre, predestined, if you will. But fatalism will bring you to a place where, well, everything is inevitable. It's outside of my control. It's this passive acceptance or almost a resignation to say, well, there's nothing I can do to change it, so, so why bother at all? God must be this arbitrary person that decided what happens and had, no, had done so without any care or thought to me in mind. 
it almost negates the human responsibility side of things. And in fact, it dehumanizes us. It makes us less human to think that we have no part in what happens in the world around us. And then it also makes God the author, the source of sin. And we all know that's a very skewed, uh, at best, version, view of God's character. Now this is, the, this is when you talk about predestination. When you bring up words like Calvinism or Reformed theology, this is often the picture that is placed for it. But what I'm arguing and what Peter is arguing here is that there's a different version of that and what he is trying to call the sovereignty of God. Again, it is to say that all things are predetermined, that God is the author and sustainer of all life. But that truth cannot be divorced from the character of God. It has to be rooted in the reality that God is eternal, infinite, and unchangeable in his wisdom, his power, his justice, his goodness, his holiness, his truth. Now I'm just quoting the Westminster Shorter Confession there. That we have the power to make choices and that we are part of a broader plan, of God's plan to enact his goodness, his glory, his justice. Because as we said before, even the death of his own son was a part of that plan. That this is the basis for all of our hope and assurance that we have. That we believe in a God who is in control. That he is that sovereign. So that's good theology, but what does that mean for us in practice? Is to then say, if you were to uh, put those two things in case studies, fatalism and the sovereignty of God in, let's say, counseling sessions. Let's say you're, <clears throat> you're approaching somebody who's grieving, who's just experienced immense loss, who's going through a really tough time. What fatalism will say is, well, all things happen for a reason. I'm sure there's, there's an end to this. You just kind of like hold on. You know, there's, there's something good. Maybe, hopefully, there's something good that'll happen and that, something good that you can glean from this. But what the sovereignty of God will say is, I don't know why you're going through what you're going through. But I know that God is good and that he's just and we do live in a broken world. Now, I may not know why you're going through what you're going through, but I believe in a God who would send his only son for me, for you, to die. So at the very least, we believe in a God who knows pain and suffering and loss. So we may not have the full explanation or logic to why you're going through what you're going through now, but we believe in a God who experiences pain and suffering himself and has promised us an answer a restoration and all things restored when he comes again. You see the difference there? Fatalism and the sovereignty of God, that the sovereignty of God is rooted in exactly who God is. And fatalism says, well, everything's inevitable. Everything's fate. It, it all happens for a reason. So we approach God in light of his sovereignty, in light of his goodness, of his plan for us, because we know that as he has planned Jesus reigns supreme. Jesus reigns in his life, his death, and his resurrection. And now we can approach him the very way that the apostles approached him in prayer, in assurance, in dependence on him. This is the, their theology that they're displaying here, their unity, their one accord in what they believe. 
And so then how did they begin to live it out? As we continue to read in those verses, what about the early church in its practice? Verses 32 uh, through the end of that passage remarks uh, an incredible generosity. Uh, This economy that seems utterly radical as to what they were thinking and, and how they actually lived this way. The passage tells us that they shared everything and they had everything in common. Members of the church and and the believers and followers were selling their homes, selling their real estate, their possessions, and taking all of those proceeds and donating it at the apostles' feet, entrusting them to distribute that accordingly. So that ultimately, amongst the early church, every single one of the people who were believing and, and following them, there was not one person who was in need. How radical is that kind of economy, that kind of generosity? But if we think about even our church, all 300 plus members of our church, formal members, and I'm sure more that were our regular attenders. If you think about every single one of the needs of the people in our church being met because of the generosity of the whole body, that is a radical sense of generosity, of of introduction to the church. So then as, as uh, Luke continues to write, uh, it seems like an odd place to put the introduction of Barnabas. Barnabas is listed there at, at one of the last uh, verses there. And here is one of the most beloved figures, uh, the, one of the most prominent apostles that we'll see more of in the book of Acts. Uh, and one reason to mention Barnabas here is that in the, the next chapter, in the beginning of chapter 5, we have the narrative of Ananias and Sapphira and, and their sort of uh, um, greed in their proceeds of money. So that's one reason why to starkly contrast between Barnabas and them. But the other reason that I think that Luke places Barnabas here is as beloved and as prominent as Barnabas was, he was the one who ultimately was there when Paul was converted. In chapter 9, he's the shepherd of the new Gentile converts in Antioch. He's the one that was entrusted to the relief, for the relief of the poor. He was the first partner of Paul in his missionary journeys. And he was a big advocate for, for John Mark being, being restored and given a second chance. For how prominent and, and lofty Barnabas' works were, the reason why I think Luke introduces it here is that he juxtaposes it right next to the radical generosity of the church. To say that what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit is to, be, is to be consumed by this kind of generosity that was displayed. And so we see Barnabas being sent out from the very nature and economy and reception of the gospel here by the power of the Spirit. Now again, this all sounds nice, but what does it mean for us? How does this apply to us? I could just say, go and do likewise, right? Uh, it seems like a conflict of interest as a pastor employed by the church to say, go and do likewise and give generously. But um, it is a reflection of what genuine community looks like. Uh, it is uh, some markers of what a genuine community looks like. And I say that first to say, a lot of people in, in history and in criticism of, of God's word will say, well, this is where some people may derive this idea of a Christian communism, if you will. It seems to promote that. And that's not what Luke is talking about here. This is not a biblical basis or an example or or a a rationale for communism. But we see here that all of the giving, all of the generosity done in the early church was was voluntary. 
That it was out of their own sacrificial giving that the early church members chose to give radically and generously. And it wasn't a renouncement of all personal property. The, the text doesn't say that everybody sold everything that they had and they all shared in this pool together. Because as we know, later, there are witnesses, there's evangelism, there's ministry done still in occupied Christian homes. But people did have some retention of, of personal property. But how this reflects for us genuine community is we see the new covenant lived out in this full conveyance of loving, loving neighbor as yourself. That if you can live in a community where not one single person has a need, you see this economy of resources being shared, of time and effort and energy spent in loving one another in ways that we all love others more than self. The early church operated more than just this ethereal concept of of God's sovereignty and good theology and teaching, but they lived it out. They had real-life implications. Poverty was erased. Exiles and captives were released, and physical ailments healed because of the power of the Spirit. Now, how could this genuine community look like for us? What would it look like for us to live in this kind of community? One of my favorite illustrations is a reflection by C.S. Lewis. Immediately after one of his very close friends passed away, uh, Charles Williams was his name, and C.S. Lewis is reflecting on, on his grief and processing the loss of his friend. And he, he says this, In each one of my friends, there's something that only one, some other friend can fully bring out. By myself, I am not large enough to call the whole man into activity, I want other lights than my own to show all his facets. Now he's talking about his friend now. Now that Charles is dead, I shall never again see Ronald, in fact is J.R. Tolkien, I shall never again see Ronald's reaction to a specifically Charles joke. Far from having more of Ronald now that I have him to myself, because Charles is away, I actually have less of Ronald. So what C.S. Lewis is saying is that their lives, their community was so intertwined that our identities are made up in the people around us. That the community that we, that we seek to exist in, that, that if we're pursuing this genuine community filled by the Spirit, our own personal identities are so intertwined with other people that we are then defined, like a little bit of me exists in Jim and the rest of our staff, and a little bit of you exists in those sitting next to you, and that is the beginning of what a picture of our church can look like. When the Word of God talks about Jonathan and David in, in the book of Samuel, it talks about their souls being knit together, existing in a way that we are so intertwined that we are defined by our other fellow brothers and sisters. So it's not just pursuing genuine community for the sake of it. It's not just pursuing these external markers to say that we can check off radical generosity. We can check off all needs being met. We can check off healing and miracles being done. That's not what the apostles were doing, but they were pursuing one another and they were pursuing the Lord in their ministry and what they were doing. That so much of what, who they were and what they were doing was intertwined with the unity that they shared with and in each other. So then these all seem like good theology, good points to go off, good illustrations to go off of. But how does this apply for us? 
as I was thinking about the application for this text um, for this week, my initial thought was prayer, right? Because the, the, the narrative that happens just before this is that they're threatened with violence. They say, if you don't stop, we're going to hurt you. We might, we might even kill you. So stop what you're doing. And there, the, uh, Peter and John's immediate and first response was to go back and pray. Was to go back to their community and say, you know, we have to go to the Lord in prayer. In the face of violence and persecution, their prayer then was not for their preservation, for God to save them from this violence. It wasn't even for God, would you thwart the efforts of the Sanhedrin and the Jewish councils? But it was for boldness to go forward more to preach the word of God. That was their posture. And they were able to pray this because they were living out the theology that they believed in, in the sovereignty of God. If we believe in a God who is sovereign and in whom we place our rest and assurance, we can ask for boldness that in in the light and face of violence, death, and persecution, we ask for more strength to go to preach more boldly. Our prayers of supplication are rooted in God's character, our trust in him, not our own designs or what we find Ideal. So that was kind of where I was sitting for a while in the week of this application, is, is to pray. It's, it's great to pursue generosity, it's great to pursue unity in and of itself, but we need to do so in prayer. And yes, I believe that's true, but the danger I realized in making that the point of application is that there's also a temptation to emphasize the human part of it. It's to say, okay, then I just need to pray harder. If I just have this system, if I, if I have this revitalization of my prayer life and and I, and, I, and I convey and instill structures and regiments in place to, to pray in the morning, certainly pray before my meals and before I go to bed. Maybe this will happen. And there was a temptation there. And so I quickly landed on another application for this passage, and that's to say, be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit of God, as it says in verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Be filled with the Spirit of God. You're sitting there and now saying, well, Naman, how do we do that? How do we be filled with the the Spirit of God? How is that a point of application? That's nothing I have control over, and that's exactly my point. Is this idea that we believe in a God who is sovereign. That when we read this passage, it's tempting to think, of the ten best things for the church to do to model the early church to be successful. It's certainly my temptation as as the executive pastor of the church to pick apart this and the strategies and what they did, what they did wrong, and how to go forward with uh, a better posture, better competence. But the only reason the apostles were able to do what they did and have the effect that they did is because they were filled with the Spirit of God. And they did so in unity. So the one way to, I guess, pursue being filled with the Spirit is to pursue one another. Is to pursue God. That we aren't just tuning ourselves to our agenda, what we think is right, or maybe even, this is a good and trusted person, I believe that, maybe I'll just tune myself to them. But tuning ourselves to God and God himself. That when Peter and John... They came back and they were threatened with violence. They came with the other other apostles. And what did they do? They prayed together. And they asked for boldness. They asked for courage for all of them to preach the word of God. 
God's sovereignty doesn't discourage us from prayer and from unity. It's not to say that, well, God will do what he do. Well, he'll, he'll do. So I guess I don't need to pray. Or I guess I don't need to pursue unity. If God is who he says he is, then things will happen, right? Fatalism again. But in the sovereignty of God, it actually encourages us, encourages us to pursue one another, to live a life in community that is intertwined with one another, and to depend on God in a way to say, I need to pray. In order to pursue God and pursue one another, I need to come to God in utter humility, knowing that I cannot do this apart from his good plan. So we realize it's not a passivity of this, of waiting for us to be uh, filled with the Spirit, or doing better, but it's to pursue God, to pursue our love of neighbor as ourselves. And that's exactly the success of the other church, is that they were filled with the power of the Spirit. And that thousands came to hear the gospel and to be converted and to hear the good news that Jesus came, that he died, and that he rose again. And notice how the, <clears throat> the reason for why they were able to demonstrate this radical generosity. Verse 33. <clears throat> and with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. They didn't just preach good sermons about how to give of your belongings, but they preached the resurrection of Jesus to say Jesus came and conquered death. And therefore, we can now live in his hope and power. And that's our prayer for our church as we pursue new building, as we pursue continued efforts for campus ministry, as we pursue one another, as we pursue each other in our sicknesses, in in our hard times, in our relational strife, and all of these things, that we would come together pursuing each other in prayer by the power of the Spirit. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that this picture of your early church uh, does not have to be one that is distant. Father, that we can tangibly experience and live out uh, what it means to be filled by your Spirit. Lord, you promise us uh, the gifts of your Spirit, not just for the sake of being <clears throat> better people or better communicators or more generous people, but you give us your Spirit because you love us and that you seek to proclaim Christ uh, in all that we do. So Lord, in humility, we ask that you would fill us, that as we think about our, our own jobs, as we think about our relationships, as we think about our callings as neighbors, as spouses, as parents, as children, as friends, as those who are uniquely in a community defined by one another, help us to be intertwined <clears throat> in a way, unite us in ways that proclaims the message of Jesus, that we would go forth boldly to share what he has done for us, the victory that he has achieved for us. So Lord, help us in that same boldness. Seek you, seek one another, and may your spirit be at work. All these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat>